Rivalry Week, and we're counting down the days to this Saturday showdown in Keenan Stadium. Welcome to this episode of the Duke Football Talk Section 17 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kennedy, alongside Josh Cox, Scott Medlin, and Jamie Holden. Before we get to this weekend's matchup between the Blue Devils and North Carolina, well, we first have to discuss this past weekend's victory over the Kansas Jayhawks. And with the win, the Blue Devils head into conference play with a 3-1 overall record, fellas. Yeah, I mean, what what a game. I mean, we definitely, at the beginning of the season, three and one was something we all talked about, um, either three and one or four and oh. Um, but, man, we really didn't think it would come this way. And um, what a what an odd game. What an odd game this past Saturday was. Um, to, to get into a little bit of the weeds, um, just being honest with you, the, the fact that we had to come in the second half and outscore them 31 to nine in the second half, um, that that says something. Um, we definitely did not show up in the first half like we ought to. Our defense was very leaky. Um, man, we made Jason Bean, um, who has been an inaccurate quarterback, we made him look like he could daggone throw the football and um, gave up some big plays. And I'll be honest with you, that really concerns me moving forward as we head into ACC play. Um, on the positive side, though, um, since I took the mic first, I'm sure we all want to say this, but Gunnar Holmberg, man, like that guy showed up to play. He only threw for one touchdown, but man, my guy ran for four touchdowns, called his own number. It seems like we finally have a quarterback that understands that, that read option. Um, he, he's holding onto the ball a little bit more than guys that we've had in the past. And it seems like he really does read that defensive end. And if that defensive end collapses, Gunner is completely fine keeping that football and running it. Uh, he mentioned when we interviewed him back in the offseason that when he was in the ninth grade, he was already running a four or five. And that was one of the things that attracted some schools to him. And, man, we're seeing it. And so, man, Gunner has proven himself. He's in the top four in most categories as a quarterback in the ACC. And let's face it, the ACC's got – a lot of good talent at quarterback, at least what we thought was going to be really good talent coming into the season. And Gunner's really in the top four in most categories. And so, man, this was the Gunner Holmberg coming out party. 
And uh, I'm, I'm just glad for him uh, that he's, he's getting recognition for it. And so anyway, overall, um, glad we got the win. We covered the spread. Um, it would have just been nice to cover the spread and only give up, you know, seven, 10, 14 points instead of giving up 30 some. Yeah. Like Josh said, strange, strange game. We were sitting there in the first half. I mean, I, we were pretty up, upset with the, with the happenings on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, positive side for the defense, Jason Bean has been known for his running the ball. They did hold him in check for the most part, running the ball. He didn't have any long runs uh, like he did against Coastal. I think he ran a couple of long touchdowns against Coastal Carolina. We were able to keep him from exploding too much on that side, 54 yards total. And I think it was less than four yards per carry as well, if I saw that correctly. Um, but as far as passing the ball, like Josh said, we made him look really great. I made the comment to, I think, Scott, while we were sitting in the stadium, we made him kind of look like Patrick Mahomes, like out there running around. You know, he was he may have not been running down the field, but he was moving around in the pocket quite a bit. And our receivers were running crossing patterns and just getting open in the first half. In the second half, we settled down and got it done. But on the bright side, the offense was great besides two turnovers. Shout out to Gunner, actually, on the, on the interception. Gunner chased that guy down the sideline and made the tackle, a saving a touchdown. So that was pretty good to see. A lot of times you'll see a guy give up on that, but Gunner did not give up on that. Uh, Mateo with another 100-yard rushing game, another touchdown. As Josh mentioned, Gunner was awesome. I don't think I need to go into that any, anymore. We, we saw how awesome Gunner was, and we're going to need him to be that level throughout the rest of the year if we're going to stand a chance of making a bowl game. Yeah, to piggyback real fast on what Jamie said there, mentioning Gunner making that play on the interception. Um, it looked like he thought the wide receiver was going to make an out pattern. Wide receiver thought it was an out and up. So, honestly, like you said, he made a great tackle. And let's be honest, who says that doesn't change the momentum of the game completely? I know it's the first drive, but if they go up 7 nothing, what does that do to the team? What does that do to the fans? What does it do to everything? I mean, and they didn't get anything out of it anyway because then when they set up for the field goal, he kicked it wide right. So, you know, the fact that he didn't give up on the play, it was a mistake, yes. Instead of pouting and going to the sideline and being a, throwing a temper tantrum, he said, you know what, I made a mistake. I'm going to go tackle this dude. So shout out to him for that because there's a lot of quarterbacks, NFL, college, that would have made that interception and just stood there and watched the guy run. So anyway, that's my little soapbox there for a moment. But yeah, it's just that, you know, things didn't exactly go the way we wanted to in the first half. And that's our biggest issue, I would say, right now as a football team. We either play one half or we play the other. Last week, the week before, 30 to nine in the first half against North, but 30 to seven in the first half. This week, 31 to nine in the second half. So we got to find the, the balance there. Um, there. Obviously, we've got the players. The, obviously, the defense that we're going to start playing now is we're going to step up a little bit. But, you know, on defense, Shaka had another big game, nine tackles. He had an interception that the turf monster tackled him there about the 10-yard line. Jalen Stinson had a big day. Nate Thompson had a big day. Again, one of the things that, um, you know, I guess I've been harping on it, and, you know, that's my fault, my problem. 
but 65 yards worth of penalties again. That's an issue. Right now in the season, we're averaging seven uh, per game for 97 and a half yards. You just can't do that. I don't care who you're playing. And when you get into the ACC play, it's a totally different game. Now, here's one positive that I've been trying to keep up with, and I've not mentioned it yet, so forgive me. Duke has been in the red zone 20 times this season, 22-0. They have scored 18 of the 20. The two times they didn't, was it Charlotte won the fumble and Mateo with the fumble. So 14 of, 14 of the 18 have been touchdowns. So let's be honest. We would beg and plead in years past for 14 touchdowns in a season, a season. So the fact that the, we're being efficient in the red zone and the fact, like Josh said earlier, or maybe Jamie, that he's keeping the football. We've been begging for quarterbacks to do that for years now. And finally, we have a quarterback that is reading that defensive end and either putting it into Mateo for the run or Jordan for the run or keeping it and getting the first down and touchdowns at the goal line. And, and, and real quick about what you just said, Scott, about the two times that we have not scored in the red zone, both of those fumbles, it seemed like we were heading into the end zone, like five-yard line. Like, I mean, Mateo was – having he not fumbled that ball, he was in the end zone. And, and I feel like Gunner would have been the same way, or maybe not on that play, but I feel like we score on both of those um, if we don't fumble. So can you imagine sitting here being 20 for 20 on that? So really, really cool. That's a great stat, Scott. And they also were like game, you know, gameplay fumbles like that, that gunner fumble heading into the end zone there at Charlotte. That was a great play by Charlotte. I don't think it was anything Gunner did wrong or anything Mateo did wrong. They weren't being careless with the ball. It was just good plays by the other team. And let's be real, as we were leaving the Charlotte game, and we're gonna kind of do a progress report after we're done with this Kansas analysis. We were having a lot of questions on this team. We we thought we would go in and hand Charlotte a big loss and we would start the season off right. And as the guys were saying earlier, that we would be 4-0, if not 3-1. and You know, we'd probably lose to Northwestern. But all in all, what the guy said, I'm just going to echo because it's the truth. This team has not had a complete game yet. We've got to have a complete game going forward. There's no – room to have one bad half and then one good half or one good half and to let the foot off the gas and have one bad half because if there was ever a team to start ACC play coming up is UNC come on I mean yes they've had their their problems and we'll get into that later on this episode but this team is showing that they're still working some kinks out working some bugs out more so on the defensive side than the offensive side our offense put up almost 625 yards of offense against Kansas. But on the flip side, our defense gave up 530 yards to Kansas. So are we now a Big 12 school? Are we just going to be in shootouts against teams going forward? That'd be a lot of fun, don't get me wrong. But it would be very stressful on all of us as we're sitting in Section 17 or watching the games from the television. One thing that stood out to me was that Jordan Moore was nowhere to really be seen during this Kansas game. That was very surprising to me. It, it was almost as though Cut finally tossed the keys to Gunner and said, this is your team. 
go for it. Show me what you got. And it's nothing against Jordan. He has surprised a lot of people so far in these four games in a good way to where, God forbid, if something were to happen to Gunner, Jordan could come in and just take off where Gunner left off. So a great way to, to put an exclamation point on our non-conference season, going three and one is probably the best we could ask for. Uh, again, after the Charlotte game, there were folks saying, oh, my goodness, we might go one and three, maybe two and two. What's this season going to hold? But as we've seen, not only with non-conference games, but this, this coastal division, things are already getting crazy. And it's going to be an interesting next eight games in the coastal division. But we'll, we'll, we'll go into the coastal division here later on in this episode. I think, I think we've said all we need to say about Kansas as we head into really more or less our progress report after four games. And I kind of started us off, fellas, with where we think the team is at right now. So, so where do you guys see this Duke team as we head into the next batch of four games starting ACC play uh, this Saturday against UNC? Um, you know, I, I will say this, just going off the numbers that we've had so far this season, uh, compared to what we thought when the season started, we definitely undersold this team. We undersold every position, every player, everything, which, hey, I'm glad to be surprised like that. I'm okay with it. Granted, like you said, Brian, I don't want this to become a Big 12 conference where we're trying to outscore each other. Now, that'll come on November, the first weekend of November against Pittsburgh where we play the arcade game against them. But, you know, as we get to the next four weeks, I definitely don't want to do that. But, you know, just some different things that um, the offensive line is only getting up five sacks. I mean, last year, my man was getting sacked every other play. So, obviously, the O-line has stepped up, which to me says a whole lot about where we've progressed to. Now, granted, sample size, non-conference, but still, we're getting – Gunner has time on the big play against Northwestern. On that play, he had five seconds in the pocket. He's smart. He's efficient. These guys are catching the football. Mateo's running. He's finding holes. And even when Mateo gets stopped sometimes, he comes out of that pile and runs down the sideline. So we're doing great on offense, I think. We're, I think we have more imagination. I think that's fair to say. We've definitely gotten a lot better when it comes to that. And the defensively, well, we've had a lot of guys out there that – really have not had a big part per se. Um, we've had some injuries and that's, you know, Jameric Woods not playing last week may have had a little bit to do with why we gave up some of those plays, but the two big long pass plays that being through 40 yards down the field, the defenders right there, they just made great catches. There was a couple plays where, you know, like we were in against Kansas guys slipped out. Nobody noticed. He threw it to them. They were gone. So, you know, just, just small things. And I think part of that's too is just these guys, new guys getting in and opportunities. I mean, Nate Thompson, that was his second game for the season. So, you know, just uh, if you had to ask me where we were from when the season started to right now, three and one is great. So excited about that. We would rather be 4 0, obviously, but we're not going to be there. But knowing that the defense is getting better to me in certain positions, the offense has gotten a lot better than last year. I'll take three and one, and I'll take it going this weekend against the rivalry team, and who knows what may happen. 
Yeah, I forgot to mention this, and Jamie, I'll let you on here in just a second. Our defense is starting to find their identity, you know, all jokes aside, because in my research, I saw they had no sacks in the first two games against teams that we should have had sacks against in Charlotte, North Carolina, A&T. Last two games against big power five teams in Kansas and Northwestern, we've had three sacks. And we've also forced seven turnovers in the last two games, two fumbles and uh, five interceptions. So that's something to be proud of as we head into ACC play. So it's not like this that our defense is in a lull. They're actually improving each game. And that, that makes me cautiously optimistic that we'll continue to get better as we play these better teams. I think the biggest takeaway for me in the first four games is I was super surprised to see how good the offense has been and the Ferris uh, Boyette combination of offensive coordinator. Because I think coming into the season, we didn't know uh, if Cut was really going to take a step back from the offense or was he still going to be kind of hovering and kind of being that helicopter parent or any or everything. But um, I think that he's taking a step back and he's letting you know, Ferris and Boyette go, and we've seen the results. I don't want to get into too much of the offensive stats because I know Josh has a nice rundown of that stuff coming up, but that that was really my biggest takeaway in the first four games is I'm really very pleasantly surprised by the offense. I mean, as far as the defense is concerned, like Brian said, we've seen improvement. That first half of the Northwestern game might have been the best I've seen the defense play in a couple of years. Like, they were legit all over the field, making plays. I don't know what happened. Northwestern adjusted. You know, Northwestern, I think, will still end up being a good team. They're coached by a great a great coach. They adjusted and ended up scoring 16 points in the second half. But the defense still, they made plays down the stretch. They, they held Northwestern out of the end zone. Dwayne Carter, like, he's playing out of his mind. Shock of the last few games has been on fire all over the field. Um, shout out to special teams. Shout out to Charlie Ham. He's 20 of 20 for on the extra extra points, which is always good. You always want to see your guy come in and make all the extra points. He's five of six on, on field goals. He only missed one that was 50-plus yards. So he gets an A-plus in, in my book. Uh, I think Charlie will end up kicking on Sundays. Overall, three and one. We all thought that we'd be three and one. Looking back, we wish we could have that Charlotte game back. I, I kind of wish I was thinking about it. I wish we would have played AT first and then the next weekend went on the road to Charlotte. Uh, I think maybe then we would have been a little more prepared. All in all, it's been a great start to the season, and I've been thoroughly impressed with pretty much all the phases of the team yeah I wanted to get on here tonight and call out Matt Guerrero and Ben Albert because you know at the end of the day um our defense has been much more suspect than our offense um and I think there was some chirping and some talk about that before the season so I'm not sure that that's necessarily a surprise but to uh to I believe Scott's point earlier I could be wrong here, but I don't believe that we've had one snap this year where Nate Thompson and Jameric Woods have been on the field together. I believe that Jameric played the first two games, and I believe Nate came played the last two games. 
And so I don't believe we've had our safeties, all our starting safeties on the field together, Lummy, Jameric Woods, and Nate Thompson on the field together. Now, I'm not using that as an excuse. Um, we have gotten beat some with our scheme, uh, I feel like. But sometimes, as we mentioned, we're just getting beat on some individual plays, and our DBs are right there. I mean, they're like borderline defensive pass interferences, and the guys are catching the ball. And at the end of the day, those jump balls, we all know that we've been the beneficiary of them in the past. Those jump balls, literally, that's what they are. They're jump balls. And sometimes you come down with them, and sometimes you don't. So, like, at the end of the day, I'm not as disappointed with the defense as I, as I really want to be, to be honest with you. I want to I wanna come throw some shade. It would be nice, though, for Albert Guerrero to get a little bit uh, more creative and uh, figure out a way for this defensive line to get a little bit more pressure. As Brian mentioned, the last two games, we've done a little better at that. Um, but moving forward, we need to do that. So what I did real quick was um, I took our, our leading players – um, and we are now four games in. We have a 12-game season, so we're a third of the way through the season. And I took our uh, top players, and what I did was I know we're going into ACC play, so I didn't multiply their numbers by three because I think that's a little unrealistic. I believe as we go into ACC play, we're going to face better defenses. Games are going to slow down maybe a little bit more, and we won't maybe see the exact numbers that we've seen these first four games. So what I did was I took what we have done so far individually, and I multiplied it by two and a half. So it's given us that uh, little bit of leeway there. Um, so if these guys continue on their same pace two and a half times, right, uh, for the remainder of the season, here's what the final numbers will look like. Mateo Durant would finish the season this year with 217 carries for 1,305 yards. 27 catches for 420 yards. So that is uh, 1,725 total yards with 22 total touchdowns. Uh, Gunnar Holmberg would pass for 2,850 2, yards. He would rush for 395 yards and have 22 total touchdowns. Uh, Jalen Calhoun, if he stays on his pace uh, two and a half times, would be 48 catches for 555 yards and three touchdowns. Jake Bobo, who, by the way, if he ended, if he did not play another game this season, already has career highs in catches and yards in the first four games of the season. He would have 85 catches for 980 yards. Um, on the defensive side of the football, using the same math, Shaka Hayward would finish the season with 102 tackles. Lummy Young would finish the season with 70 tackles. So at the end of the day, once again, trying to be logical there, um, if we can just keep up somewhat of the same pace, uh, we're going to have some individual players who have some really, really good seasons. Um, should Gunner uh, break the 3,000 mark, which he can do, I believe he needs to average 235 yards a game uh, for the remainder of the season, um, and he would have 3,000 passing yards. We have not had a quarterback throw for 3,000 yards since 2012. You may remember the guy, Mr. Sean Renfrey. Uh, back in 2012 was the last quarterback at Duke to, to throw the ball for 3,000 yards. So that could that could logically happen. And so what I'm doing sitting here four games in, guys, I am pleased. They're on the offensive side of the football. Man, I couldn't be more pleased. There's not one player that I'm disappointed with. I mean, we, we made jokes like, will Jake Marweedy catch a pass this year? And he has. Uh, our, our tight ends are different. There's not a Noah Gray out there. But, man, we've got three tight ends that are catching the ball. In fact, I believe this past uh, this past week all three of our guys uh, caught at least one pass. 
Um, sure, Eli Pankow may not be um, as involved um, as we kind of would maybe hope he'd be, but Eli's doing well. Our, our receivers are doing uh, great. Um, and then we found a, we found a, a change of pace quarterback in Jordan Moore. Um, so at the end of the day, guys, Jordan Waters is playing well. I've got nothing but positive things to say. Um, we'll talk about Carolina coming up here in a little bit, but I only have positive things to say about the first four games of the season. Josh forgot to mention one thing, as I saw Mateo's Heisman. Well, speaking of Mateo, Josh, you said if he got to 1,300 yards, that would be another, I believe, 800 yards added to what he's already done. That would move him into fourth all time in the Duke rushing list. And, and let me put this into preference for some Duke fans that might have just jumped on this bandwagon a couple of years ago. This man split carries the last two years. In his freshman year, he only had 43 yards. And he could possibly be in the top five for all-time leading rushers at Duke. Come on now. Uh, he's an incredible talent. Incredible talent. Shout out to the Duke strength and conditioning. Uh, keep him uh, in a in an ice uh, in ice and and a heat and ice and heat and ice and heat and keep that guy uh, as healthy as possible uh, because if he stays healthy, it's going to be special. And um, so that's kind of where we're sitting, guys. We're sitting there um, after after four games, I believe. I, I really do believe if at the beginning of the season, before we kicked off against Charlotte. If somebody would have said, hey, guys, you can start the year three and one, will you take it? I believe all of us would have been like, oh, we would like to be four and oh, but I tell you what, if you guarantee us three and one, hey, we'll take it and we'll roll with it. And so um, at the end of the day, um, I think we're all um, happy with that. Moving on, this this coming Saturday, man, we are heading over eight miles west on 15501, and we will be in Keenan Stadium, and we will be facing the UNC Tar Heels, as we've done um, throughout the season thus far, we've been able to sit down with the play-by-play uh, -play -play announcer for each of our opponents, and um, no different this week, we were able to sit down, Scott was, um, and have a, a really, really great conversation uh, with the voice of the Tar Heels, Mr. Jones Angel. Scott, take it away. Joined now by Jones Angel, the voice of the North Carolina Tar Heels on the IMG Sports Network. Jones will be on the call for the Saturday's game at Keenan Stadium against Duke. Jones, thanks for joining us here on the Section 17 podcast. Oh, man, Scott, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited for this game coming up. Obviously, the Tar Heels uh, feel like they need to play a little bit better than they have uh, so far through the first month of the season, and particularly coming off a uh, pretty poor performance for them this past weekend down in Atlanta against Georgia Tech. And always fun when Carolina and Duke get together, of course. So uh, excited for this uh, game coming up on Saturday. Yeah, rivalry week is always fun, no matter what it is, football, basketball, baseball, you know, checkers, it doesn't matter. It's always That's fun right. Duke Carolina. So this season, uh, Hubert Davis has taken over for Roy Williams, and then next season, John Shire will be taking over for Coach K. You yourself replaced a radio legend when Woody Durham retired in 2011. What was it like to replace Woody Durham and become the voice of the Tar Heels? Yeah, dude, it was really hard. I mean, I don't think that's uh, that's not a big secret. You know, Woody was was one of the very best, was so well known, not just in our state, but nationally. And um, he was great. He, he was great at what he did. I grew up listening to Woody. I mean, I, I would turn down the sound and, you know, I'd watch Carolina football and basketball games and, and listen to Woody and, and Mick Mixon at the time on the Tar Heel Sports Network. So it was really hard. 
Um, what was a benefit for me was a couple different things. One, I had been working with the Tariel Sports Network for a while. And so I knew how things worked. Uh, I knew how important Woody was. Um, so I wasn't trying to come in and light things on fire and, and restart everything. It, it was more uh, continuing the level of excellence that he had set and our network had set, but doing it in, in my way, you know, keeping that same level of professionalism and still doing a good job, but, but not trying to be Woody. And while we're talking about, you know, a much smaller scale than what Coach Shire and Coach Davis uh, are uh, about to have to deal with, I, I think it is comparable because the, the level of excellence of Carolina basketball and Duke basketball, you know, the, they don't want that to go anywhere. They're not trying to start from the bottom. The, the, the base is there, but they want to put their own twist on things, and that's understandable. And so, um, you know, will, will the lack of a timeout get questioned or will going to his own defense get questioned at some or whatever? Of course it will be. Um, and will they get a little more heat than, than Coach Williams or Coach Krzyzewski did? Of course they will. But um, I, I think both those guys are so well-respected and, and qualified for the jobs that, that they've been asked to do. And um, it's a new chapter in the rivalry for sure. Uh, but I think both those guys are going to do a terrific job and, and they, they are ready to do it. And so I think it'll be a, a fun, you know, I know we're, we're both hoping on different sides. You know, this is a 30-year answer for both schools. Or, or whatever, 20, 30, whatever we're talking about. And hope it's a long-term uh, fun rivalry between those two coaches. Yeah, it's definitely the, the future, I think, looks bright for both schools. Um, you know, you mentioned a second ago about broadcasting there. You're, as a UNC graduate, how hard is it to not become a fan while you're broadcasting the games? Yeah, sure. No, that's a great question. And I think one thing that Woody did really well since we mentioned him earlier is he balanced professionalism with passion for Carolina. Because look, there's no secret. I mean, we want Carolina to win the game. We're the Tar Heel Sports Network, just like David Shumate and the guys on the Blue Devil Network, they want Duke to win, and that's okay. But they also don't want to be, and we don't want to be so far on the, the fan slash Homer side of things that, you know, every call against Carolina is a bad call. Or every four-yard run is the most spectacular four-yard run that you've ever seen. That, that's just not the case. So you want to stay professional with what you're doing. You want to tell the accurate story of the game. But from our perspective, we, we want to champion and highlight the Carolina side more because we're the Tar Heel Sports Network. And so I, I think that role is different than, you know, Sean McDonough or Jay Billis or somebody who's doing a national game. Their role's different than what we are doing. I mean, that's okay. That, that's what our role is. And so, you know, for example, Carolina football played down at, at Georgia Tech last week. The Jackets had eight sacks in that game. They had three the entire season before that. You know, that was a story. And it was a good story for Georgia Tech and a bad story for Carolina, but it was a story of the game. And so you still had to tell that story. And if somebody for Duke scores 40 points or somebody for NC State rushes for 300 yards, we need to tell that story when Carolina is playing that game. So um, I do think that you try your best to stay professional, make sure that you're not doing anything crazy, but also understand that, hey, yeah, we want Carolina to win the game and, and we are happier when the Tar Heels do things well. Right. That makes that makes total sense. And you may have kind of answered this next question a little bit with your answer there, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So take us back to the uh, call with Gio Bernard on the punt yeah. return against NC State. 
how how was that? I mean, in that moment. You know, Scott, I'm not sure I even remember the moment itself um, because uh, one, it was nine years ago now, which is wild to think about. Um, but it was such a emotional moment in Keenan Stadium, and it's funny. You know, you talked about you know coming in after after Woody, and I do think that play and that play call helped me tremendously because it was the first big memorable moment that Carolina had had since Woody had retired and it was the first big memorable play that people associated my uh, call with with the play and for whatever reason people like the call and that's awesome and um, but it helped me build some equity with Carolina fans of oh okay at least this guy can handle what's happening here Um, and so I do think that helped and Scott I mean to this day it, it is the number one call that people still ask me about um, I was at a golf tournament, uh, not this past spring, because unfortunately we didn't have many, but before that, um, and somebody said, hey, call my cell phone number. And I didn't know this guy at all. And so I said, okay, what's your number? And so, you know, he gave me his number. I called it and his ringtone was that play call. And so it's just like, for whatever reason, it, it resonated with people and they've really enjoyed it. And, and the reason it resonated and part of what's so cool about what I get to do here, or Dave gets to do at Duke or, you know, Gary Hans doing at State is that. You, you do get to be there with the, the fans for great moments and difficult moments, and you build that relationship with them. And so to, to have that great moment that we all, as Carolina fans and people who love the Tar Heels, shared, because, you know, Carolina had lost the state, whatever, like four or five straight times at that point, and it was right in the, the height of all the NCAA stuff, and there was just so much emotion. And so to have that release of that emotion in the stadium that day on that great play, uh, was was awesome. I remember standing up and kicking over my stool, but uh, that's about the only thing I really remember. Uh, but it was a, a great a great play for the Tar Heels, great day for the Tar Heels, and uh, certainly one that, that Carolina fans uh, still enjoy. Yeah, because that's definitely, you know, you're talking about the calls and people enjoy and stuff. That was one of the calls that I remember most listening to because I was actually in the car that day traveling, and I was just like, oh, my goodness. And, you know, so excited. And Honestly, didn't care who won the game just from the Duke side, but it was a great call to see how Bernard did so well and got the touchdown. Um, what is your preparation like on a typical game week in the life of a broadcaster? And the B side of that question, how stressful is it when football and basketball overlap? Yeah, yeah and isn't it cra- I mean, when I was growing up, it felt like there was like an end of football season and then basketball started, right? now. I mean, now you have this like four to six weeks if you start mixing in exhibitions and late night and all that stuff, I mean, you're talking like six weeks of overlap. And so it, it is tough. That, that part has gotten a lot harder. You know, this season, for example, I'm going to miss uh, two basketball games this season because there's uh, Carolina plays up in an event up in Connecticut the same day that we play football uh, against Wofford in Chapel Hill. And I always just stay with football because there's fewer games and, and, you know, it's the end of their season. And so you need to be with them. So, you know, going to miss, which I hate to miss games, but it's just inevitable at this point where you're going to miss a game or two during that crossover. So the month of November in particular is difficult um, because you're dealing with multiple coaches shows a week and multiple games a week and different sports a week. And um, it it is tough, but it's tough for everybody that time of year. It is a busy, busy time of year. You know, for me, Scott, um, when you're preparing for a, a ball game, football in particular, it really is a week-long journey. Um, I try to have markers at the end of every day of the week, kind of where I would like to be at the end of my preparation. 
at the end of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then leading up to the game. Um, and of course, you've got other stuff going on throughout the week. So it's not, you're not only for, that's not the only thing you're doing. But so like, for example, by the end of Sunday, I want to make sure that I have all my stats for Carolina completely updated from the, the previous game. So all my stuff has been updated. Plus we do stuff with Coach Brown on Monday morning. Uh, we record podcasts on Monday. So, I mean, we have a lot of stuff going on on Mondays as well. So I try to get all that done on Sunday. Then by the end of the day, Monday, I try to have my spotter board for the opposition finish. By the end of the day, Tuesday, I try to have, you know, a different, all my other kind of sheets, statistical stuff finished and ready to go. Wednesday's my day to really prep for the other team, read about their season, learn a little bit about the journey of what they've gone through to this point. Thursday, I go through game notes and uh, media guides. Friday's clean up, catch up, travel, whatever. And then you're going on on Saturday. So I, to me and this kind of person that I am, I need to be really regimented. I can't just kind of freewheel it. I, I need to have a very set schedule. And that helps me kind of stay on track and stay on uh, pace to, to be ready to go. And so um, it's difficult football for sure. You know, basketball, you can turn around and if I had to get ready for a basketball game, I could do it probably in a day. Um, I'd love to have two, three days for a game, but there's just more players, more stuff, bigger broadcast for football. And so it does take a little bit of time for sure. Well, I know as, you know, as a regimented person myself and Brian was clapping while you were saying that that's definitely kind of how I live my life. So I understand exactly where you're coming from on that. So let's, let's get into the football questions now. Since Mac Brown's return to UNC, he's obviously done a great job recruiting. Um, why has he been so successful getting players to commit to Carolina? It's a great question, Scott. And I think the answer is just because of who Mac Brown is. I, I think that's something he always has been. And he, he is one of, if not the best recruiter at the head coach position in college football. And, and there's certainly so, I mean, we all know the guys, you know, the other guys who would be in that conversation. But I think Coach Brown is, is certainly in that conversation. And it's interesting because I think the, the farther away from Chapel Hill you got when, when Mac Brown was hired for this second tenure, probably the more head scratching you did. And the more you went, wait a second, what, who? He was, I thought he was out of coaching and I thought he was on ESPN. And, but the closer you got to Chapel Hill, I think what Carolina badly needed at that time was to rebuild its presence in the state of North Carolina to rebuild a little bit of the cool factor to the Tar Heels. And Mac Brown's been able to do that. And the reason he's been able to do that, one is because of what we just talked about, just his personality and who he is and what he's good at. Two is he brought in a, a staff that really knows the state of North Carolina that either played at Carolina, has recruited North Carolina for other schools, um, went to school at maybe somewhere else in North Carolina, but knows the state. And he, he, Mac Brown, this is the craziest part to me. He already knew all the high school coaches. Maybe they were still there from the last time, or maybe their son is now the head coach and his dad was the head coach in the nineties when Mac was here. He just already had those relationships built in because of the long tenure that he had the first time here. And so all those things together have really allowed him and his staff to recruit at an extraordinarily high level. Um, and it has raised Carolina's talent level significantly. The really interesting thing, Scott, is I think the current team is still kind of in this balance of you have some really older players 
that are experienced guys who have played a lot. And then you have this really young group of players that are super talented, but also pretty young. You don't have a lot in between because that was kind of the period where the coaching transition was occurring. And so it's just kind of a funky roster in that way for Carolina. But there's no doubt that the Tar Heels have raised their talent level, are recruiting at a very high level, and feel like they have positioned themselves well, not just for this year, but for the future as well. I know um, just over the last 10 to 15 years, just being a fan of anybody in the state of North Carolina, it really stinks to see a local kid go to Georgia, go to South Carolina, go somewhere else. So I know that's one of the things that Mac was trying to work on, putting, the, I guess, the, the fence around the state of North Carolina and keeping the guys coming to Chapel Hill if he could. Well, and that's how, you know, that's a big way he was successful the first time that he was in Chapel Hill, what was getting those North Carolina guys. There's enough talent in this state to, to win at a high level. And so, you know, he always says that his, he feels like Carolina's recruiting footprint is from D.C. to around Atlanta or maybe Jacksonville, Florida, in, in that area. And he just, and you may go outside of that every now and then. But that's where he feels like his team should be made up of North Carolina first, that D.C. to Atlanta or Jacksonville area second, and then maybe a pick and choose a, a guy or two outside of that footprint every now and then. And it's, it's a blueprint that's been successful for him before, and it feels like it's uh, successful again this time around. Oh, definitely. I mean, he's, he's definitely stocking the market and picking up anybody and everybody he wants right now. So looking ahead to this week's game, uh, you kind of touched on a, maybe a little bit earlier when we first started talking, but what are some things that UNC just has to do better to get back on track against Duke? Uh, Scott, that's a good question. And and I think the answer is is relatively long here for Carolina. I think uh, the, the Tarnals just hadn't been real consistent this season. Um, they've had some really good performances, but they've had some some ugly ones too here early on. I do think it's a benefit that the Tar Heels are playing at home. They've been much better at home than they have been on the road. Um, for Carolina, they lost so much talent from a year ago at those skill position spots that I do think it's taken them a little bit of time to get into the rhythm of who are the right guys here? Do we all know what each other's doing? You know, are we comfortable with one another on the field? Um, so that's taken a little bit of time. So, but I think that's getting better. Where Carolina has struggled is in protection. You know, Sam Howell's been sacked 17 times. It's an enormous number. It is, I think, out of 130 teams, it's 123rd in the nation. That's, that's not good enough. And in Carolina's two losses, 14 of those 17 sacks occurred in their two losses. That's not too hard to figure out what the problem is there. Um, Carolina needs to run the football more consistently. We're, that They were so good, and they were good in that Duke game a year ago at running the football. Um, but Michael Carter and Javante Williams are also now, you know, guys who are getting heavy reps at the professional level. And so they had some really talented players there. Um, I don't think they're quite as talented at running back right now. Ty Chandler, the, the graduate transfer from Tennessee, DJ Jones, young player out of Fayetteville, Caleb Hood, another young player, a former Tariel Arrowhood son. You know, these guys are good players, um, but it's their first year getting a lot of action. They are, uh, they are, I think, not quite to the same level that Javante and Michael were, were a year ago. And so that just hadn't been real smooth. And so I, I think the, the two biggest things, Scott, protect the quarterback better, run the football better, 
And then Carolina just needs to be a little bit more consistent on defense. There have been some really good moments on defense and some really uh, big struggles on defense as well. So it, it all comes back to that word consistency for the Tar Heels. I think their ceiling is high, but they've had trouble getting close to that uh, ceiling here in the first four games. I appreciate all the coaching that they did for Javante Williams as a huge Denver Bronco fan. Oh, so you're going to love Javante. He's very a, he's much a good love one. that guy, he's especially a good after one. watching him run all up and down Wallace Wade last year. Um, one more, one more question before we get to the uh, side question. Sure. Give us, a, give us a couple key players on both sides of the football that uh, maybe Duke fans haven't heard of or to look out for on Saturday. Well, it, Josh Downs has certainly been terrific here uh, in his sophomore year for Carolina. He's only behind Bobo in the ACC as far as total receptions. He has 32 of them through four games, five touchdowns. He, he's a really dynamic player. But it's not a big surprise that other teams are figuring out that Josh Downs is a pretty dynamic player and that Carolina wants to get him the ball. And I thought Georgia Tech this past weekend um, really did a good job making it difficult for Carolina to get the ball to Josh in uh, ways that he could be super successful. So for Carolina, not, do, not only do they need to continue to get the ball to Downs, they've got to have those outside receivers step up a little bit as well. Sam Howell needs to really trust those outside receivers because I do think he, he's had trouble pulling the, the trigger sometimes on some of his passes. So guys like Antoine Green and Emory Simmons and Choffrey Brown, um, those guys need to continue to develop for Carolina uh, because I think that would really open up Carolina's offense on a more consistent basis as well. Um, the Tar Heels on the defensive side ha have really, again, they, they've had some nice moments and some difficult moments. Um, a guy who I think is playing really well is Kamen Rucker, who is a defensive end, outside linebacker type of player. He's been very disruptive. Uh, the leader of that defense is Jeremiah Gimmel, one of the inside linebackers, number 44. Um, he's an older guy. Um, so that defense, I, I do think, is coming along and flying around a bit. But for Carolina this week, it, it really is. And this isn't something negative about Duke. I, I think it's they are so much focused on cleaning stuff up themselves and having to be more consistent in what they are doing. Um, of course, you have to worry about how good Duke is offensively and Mateo Durant and, you know, all these guys. But Carolina's first priority is, is playing up to its level um, because if it does that, it's going to give itself a good chance to win, not just this weekend, but every, every game that it plays. If it doesn't do that, it can lose any game left on the schedule. Right. Yeah, that, that definitely makes total sense. So last question for you. The, the Section 17 crew is all about trying new places to eat. Nice. If we if we were coming to Chapel Hill, what is it? Give us a place or two over there that uh, you would tell us to try. Okay. Well, there's a couple. You know, first I gotta say, top of the hill is a great spot, and for no other reason, just because you do have that cool view. You're right there, several stories high, right in the middle of Franklin Street. Great beer. I know you guys probably don't want any of that, but they do have great beer there. Um, great food. They they do an awesome job there at top of the hill, um, and I always think that's a fun spot. Of course, there's Sutton's on Franklin Street, kind of a just a, a grease kitchen type of place, but it is awesome and has been there forever uh, on Franklin Street. They do a good job. You know, Merritt's is one that's a little bit off of, it's not right down there on Franklin Street, but close to campus. They have uh, the best BLT I've ever had in my entire life. Um, so Merritt's is another one that, that if you're just stopping through would be a good choice. Um, and, you know, that's one of the cool things about Chapel Hill is it really is a, this is a college town. You guys understand that. I mean, this is, it really is 
the heart of this town is the university. It is what this town is all about. And so to have those cool spots downtown with students and on game days, their fans all over the place, it, it really is uh, a fun atmosphere here in Chapel Hill. And I'm sure it will be this Saturday as well. Well, if nothing else, uh, while we're recording this is right before lunch. So now you've made me very hungry and I'm going to something to eat as soon as I sign off. I like so that. thank you so much. Well, Jones, thank you for joins, joining the Section 17 podcast. And good luck there with the rest of the Tar Heel football season. Man, I appreciate it, Scott. And like I said, really looking forward to this game and looking forward to basketball season. I mean, Duke Carolina is always special in basketball, no matter what. But with, there's a little extra heat, as we all understand, this year with everything that's going on with, with Coach Krzyzewski and with Coach Davis. And um, what a spectacle those two games are going to be when Duke's in Chapel Hill for the last time under Coach K and then his last home game when the Tar Heels are there. Um, really looking forward to, to being a small part of those games and can't wait, uh, can't wait for some great competition here coming up over the next several months. Thanks, Scott, for sitting down with Jones and hearing a little bit more about the UNC Tar Heels and what they're going to bring to the table uh, this coming Saturday, a rivalry game. And so looking forward to this for sure. It's that time again, ladies and gentlemen. Each week, we bring you little-known facts things that you might not know. We call it the not yet sponsored. Did you hear that? We said not yet sponsored. The not yet sponsored tale of the tape with Brian Kennedy. Wait, what was it again, Josh? I, I didn't hear you. Not yet sponsored. Got it. Okay, fantastic. It's my favorite game of the year. It's the battle of the victory bell and it's the tale of the tape for the North Carolina Tar Heels. Now, last year, UNC went eight and four and went to the Orange Bowl, but hmm, unfortunately they lost to Texas A&M 41-27. Now heading into this week, UNC is currently two and two. Who saw that one coming? Last week, the Tar Heels were upset by Georgia Tech in Atlanta 45-22. Now Mac Brown is in his 32nd year of coaching and has an overall coaching record of 255-129 and one 255 255 wins 129 losses and one tie now overall this is the 107th matchup between duke and unc and unc currently leads the series matchup on duke 61 to 41 and there have been four ties in the series now the first ever meeting between duke and unc was all the way back in 1888 at the north carolina Fair fairgrounds in raleigh where duke then Trinity College defeated the Tar Heels 16 to nothing. The two schools would play four more times between 1889 and 1894 before the series would go dormant in 1895 after Duke's then president, John Kilgo, banned football because it was, quote, too dangerous. After a 27-year hiatus, the rivalry would start back up in 1922, and since 1922, Duke and UNC have played each other every year. Now, last year, UNC defeated the Blue Devils 56-24, and they are currently on a two-game winning streak in the series. And David Cutcliffe is 5-6 overall against UNC. He was 5-8, but two of those UNC wins were vacated from 2008 and 2009, our favorite coach, Butch Davis. And now it's time for the always popular Did You Know? Ramsey's. The UNC Live mascot has been a staple of the school for almost 100 years. The tradition began in 1924 when head cheerleader Vic Huggins was inspired by UNC fullback Jack 
the battering ram Merritt, to acquire a live ram as the mascot. With $25 in his pocket and the blessing from the UNC Athletics Department, Huggins got a pedigreed ram. That ram, named Ramsey's one, made his debut at a game against Virginia Military Institute on November 8, 1924. Late in the fourth quarter, with the score 0-0, offensive guard, let me repeat that, offensive guard Bun Hackney was called in to kick a field goal. Before he went on the field, Hackney rubbed Ramsey's head for good luck. Hackney made the field goal, and UNC went on to win the game 3-0. Now, Folklord states that after the game, the students paraded Ramsey's around the quad, and he quickly became a hit on campus. After nearly 100 years, the school is currently on their 22nd Ramsey's the Ram this season. And that was the tale of the tape for the UNC Tar Heels. Uh, Brian, I got a question. You said UNC was 2-2? Two and two? I thought that they were supposed to be 4-0 and oh and national championship contenders. I'm... I'm super confused right now. You know, a lot of us woke up Sunday morning confused as well, wondering what has happened. We thought Mac was back, but I don't know. Even Mac seems a little bit confused about this. But, hey, we'll take it. This was not the UNC team we thought we would see this year, and there's a lot of UNC fans backpedaling from what I'm hearing. Easy, fellas, easy. This team could uh... – let out all of its frustration on us uh, Saturday um, at 12 noon. So Let, Let's get it out while we can. <laughs> I guess that's true. That's true. Uh, by the way, shout out to the uh, 1889 Duke football team, man. Really, uh, the offense they ran that season, man, uh, was pretty le- legit. And the way they moved the ball across the field, uh, really, really solid back there, 1889. Their hats were awesome, too. Their hats were amazing. <laughs> if, you're, if you're on our Duke football talk uh, Facebook group, I posted a photo. Those hats were top-notch. Now I see why the uh, chancellor deemed it too dangerous back in the day. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you. That was the not-yet-sponsored tale of the tape with our commentary at the end. Always appreciate that segment from Brian. Always get something that we didn't know. And um, heading into this rivalry week, we uh, each week pick our favorite um, alumni from our opponent. And as difficult as this may be, you know, we'll do this each year, and so we're not trying to use up all of ours this year, but uh, but our favorite alumnus, who is the one person that we think of when we think of UNC um, that we give a shout-out to? Some of these might end up being sarcastic at some point in time. Uh, some of these are legit. I believe all of them, if I'm not mistaken, this time are legit. And so our famous segment, Alumni Alley for the UNC Tarios. Well, um, looking as my favorite UMC alumni, there would be none because I don't like any of them. But I kid. I do have two things for you, though, that's um, kind of important. You know, the best part about Chapel Hill, um, 15-501 leading back to Durham. That's one thing. And then number two, do you know the way to get uh, UNC alumnus off your front porch? Pay for the pizza and send them down the road. Anyway, enough about that. So my favorite UNC alumnus graduated in 1949 with a Bachelor of Music degree. Um, he Right out of college, he taught music at Goldsboro High School. He started out as a monologist and told the story, what it was, was football. And for those of you that have never heard that, you really need to go back and listen to it because it is hilarious. He became 
the small town sage sheriff in Mayberry, Mr. Andy Taylor. So obviously I'm talking about Andy Griffith. He was the ta- he was there from 1960 to 1968. Many famous actors got roles on that show that moved on and did other things. Um, he was also Ben Matlock, country lawyer from Atlanta from 1986 to 1995. He was also a star on many films. One of the films that I always thought was funny, he was the bad guy in the movie Spy Hard with Leslie Nielsen. Never saw Andy Griffith as a bad guy, so I always thought it was funny. Um, he declined in 1989 to run for U.S. Senator in the state of North Carolina. In 2005, he received the Medal of Freedom from George W. Bush. Andy Griffith loved to sing country and gospel tunes. He recorded many things. Uh, one of the famous things he recorded was the Fishing Hole, which was his version of the Andrew Griffith theme song. Um, he recorded uh, I Love to Tell the Story, 25 timeless hymns, which won a Grammy for Best Southern Country, Bluegrass, and Gospel Album in 1997. Um, he also was in the video for Brad Paisley's Waiting on a Woman back in 2008. He remained great friends with Don Knotts until Don Knotts passed away in 2006 of lung cancer. Andy flew from North from Los Angeles all the way out to Manio, North Carolina, there to visit Don on his deathbed. And until 19, and he remained friends with Ron Howard too, and he did a lot of things with Ron Howard. And he died on July 3rd, 2012, at the age of 86 there in Manio. So that was my favorite alumni still to this day my dad can sit there and watch the shows and repeat it word for word for word for word and watch it all day long like he's never seen it before oh andy griffith i thought scott might break out in a whistle there at the end and do the little (laughs) do the uh, the exit there but uh really cool really cool I, i don't know uh growing up when i did and maybe some of you that are listening uh that was just kind of a staple you know if if there was nothing on tv and we were just doing stuff andy griffith was on in the background and some really funny uh, and great episodes. So my favorite alumnus um, for the University of North Carolina has a little bit of a personal touch, but this man was born in Newburn, North Carolina. That's right, Newburn, home of Pepsi. That's right, that's where the birthplace of Pepsi. That's also the home of uh, Mr. Nicholas Sparks, which it's not really popular on this podcast, I'm, I'm pretty sure, but uh, but the the rom-com and, 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 and author giant, Nicholas Sparks. Do you, do you want to talk about The Notebook? I mean, we can do a notebook review really quick if you want. I mean, I'm not going to turn down an opportunity to talk about Rachel McAdams. I mean, I'm never going to turn down an opportunity. True. So, no. Um, but my uh, famous alumni, born in Newburn, um, 1987, he was recruited by North Carolina State and uh, who he was a fan of growing up, but wound up uh, playing baseball at the University of North Carolina. Uh, right before then, he began dating my cousin in high school. And so uh, I have a, a, a family connection here, but Adam Warren is my uh, famous favorite UNC alum. And Adam came into the pitching staff there in 2006 to 2009 for the UNC Tar Heels. Um, ironically, all four years that he was there, UNC went to the College World Series. Uh, they did not uh, win. In fact, as I have spoken to him about it um, over the years, uh, a couple of those years hurt worse than others, for sure. Um, but but Adam came in and played all four years 
Um, his sophomore season in 2007, um, he was a weekday starter. Uh, he had ended up a, with a 12-0 record with a 2.17 ERA, uh, which is pretty wild. And then uh, his junior season, he went to a weekend starter, and he wound up 9-2. and two. Uh, That year, he was actually drafted after um, his junior year by the Cleveland Indians, but he decided to come back um, and play a senior season. Senior season, once again, leading the team, um, pitching there, and, and just really honestly got to play with some really, really good players at Carolina. But he was then drafted by the New York Yankees, um, 136th overall in 2009, and he wound up playing – um, several years. He played with the Yankees from 2012 to 2015. A little known thing, his debut, he actually uh, made a spot start for CC Sabathia in 2012. And I happened to be in New York City that day and was able to catch the game uh, for, his, for his debut, which was pretty cool. But he played for the Yankees in 20, from 2012 uh, to 2015. Um, he was a part of a trade that sent him to the Chicago Cubs in 2016. And he played there for half of the season until the all-star break. Uh, and then he was traded back to the Yankees, which is kind of ironic. So really he played from 2012, 2018 with the Yankees. He spent a half a season with the Cubs. Here's the cool part. Did you know uh, the season that he went to the Cubs and played that half a year was the year that they won the world series. And so Adam Warren uh, is the possessor of a really fat gold world series ring. Uh, that is, is pretty ridiculous. Um, he also has had stints with the Mariners and the Padres. Um, he's been a middle reliever for most of his career, did some starting uh, there with New York a little bit as well. And honestly, uh, his personality is super chill, but he is a fan favorite of the, of the Yankees. And um, they really, really grew to appreciate Adam. He's currently coming off a of Tommy John surgery. He's on a minor league deal uh, with the Yankees. He played triple A ball this year, getting trying to get his arm work back up. But my famous alumni, he is now my cousin. Super cool dude, super chill guy, Mr. Adam Warren. Have you worn the ring, Josh? Have you put it on? I have put it on, and I I don't have the like the fattest fingers in the world, and dude, it looks like it could like it, it's massive, man. It is, it's huge. It would fit, yeah, it would fit on Scott's hand a lot better than it would fit on my hand. Let's put it that way. I had to ask, guys. I've been in a nostalgic mode so far this week, going through tell the tape and seeing the history of Ramseys and. My alumni is all the way back in the class of 1818. I'm going with James K. Polk, our 11th president of the United States. He was born in Pineville, North Carolina, and he graduated with honors from UNC when UNC only had 80 total students. A little bit way, ways back, you know. When he graduated, he became a successful lawyer in Tennessee and you know, most people would enjoy just having a career as a lawyer, but no, nope, that wasn't good enough for old James K. He decided to run and won the U.S. House of Representatives seat from Tennessee. He was there from 1825 to 1839. And again, you think U.S. House of Representatives, that's cool. Nope, not for James K. He then became Speaker of the House from 1835 to 1839. So he's a lawyer. He represented Tennessee and he was a Speaker of the House. That's good enough, right? Nope, not good enough for James K. He then went on to become the governor of Tennessee from 1839 to 1841. Now, that's a pretty good career for most guys, right? Nope, not for James K. From 1841 to 1844, he 
I guess you could say, went on to try to, be, to campaign to be the president. And guess what? He became the 11th president of the United States on March 4th, 1845. And James K. was well known or most well known for helping the U.S. secure the Oregon Territory from the British. There was apparently a land dispute and he helped get that one taken care of. And, you know, I got to tell you, for someone to go through all that, you would think that he would live out his days and look back on his life and, you know, appreciate everything. But I'm not trying to be funny when I say this, but unfortunately, he passed away three months after he left office. He died of cholera. I don't even know how, how you say that. It's, it's a disease that's, I don't think, no longer around. But anyway, for someone like that, I mean, come on. That's a, that's a pretty good resume right there. House of Representative, well-known lawyer, Speaker of the House, Governor of Tennessee, and the 11th President of the United States, James K. Polk. I mean, you, you would think you would want like a regular death, but no, <laughs> not James K. <laughs> Hey, you, you had Perry Ellis last week. Let me have my moment with James K. okay? Wow. I do not know how I'm going to follow that. James K. Polk, ladies and gentlemen. Brian really dug deep for that one. That was, uh, that was entertaining, I will say. And in an upset, actually, nobody chose Michael Jordan this week. That's kind of shocking, but if anybody knows me that's listening, they'll know who I'm going to choose. Uh, I'm going to set it up for you. Imagine it's a Friday night. Bleachers are full. You're, you're a defensive lineman. The quarterback takes a snap. He turns around and hands the ball to Julius Peppers. That's right. Julius Peppers, not only was he a defensive lineman in high school, but he was also a running back. And he, he was good at it. He 3,500 yards in high school, that's ridiculous. 46 touchdowns. That's just insane. Um, he went on, obviously, to have all sorts of awards, Parade parade Magazine, High School All-American, basically every award you can think of in high school. Uh, but everyone knew where he was going to make his money. It was going to be as a defensive end. So when he committed to the University of North Carolina, it's as a de defensive lineman. Um, he, and he was great at it. First team All-American, uh, just a big time career. Went on North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame now. Uh, he went on to the NFL where he's had 159 and a half sacks, um, named to the all-decade team in the 2000s and the 2010s. He was rookie of the year for the Carolina Panthers. Uh, he played for the Carolina Panthers, my favorite team, from 2002 to 2009. When he left in 2009, you know, I kind of had a fit about it and took my jersey to to the goodwill, but I was I was kind of mad at the time. Uh, then he came back, and we kind of reignited that old flame, and I started liking Julius Peppers again. Uh, but eventually, he's going to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame as well, and let me stop before I lose it here. I'm not sure. Julius Peppers, ladies and gentlemen. Um, one of our, I just tweeted this from our account. One of our favorite things to do um, while Jamie's talking is try to get him to laugh. And so uh, we have a little group text going on, a little chat going on. And uh, 
Yeah. So uh, anyway, Julius Peppers. By the way, Julius Peppers, my favorite Julius Peppers is college basketball Julius Peppers. UNC, man, that dude, like he was athletic, man. He could throw it down. There's a couple of highlights of him, like throwing it down as a basketball player. But uh, shout out to Julius Peppers. Shout out. We're mo- All right, go ahead, Jamie. Jamie has got himself back now. He's ready. I was going to mention that, but I kind of like, kind of got sidetracked and was trying trying to look at the wall while I was talking, but Jamie, eventually. That's, that's my <laughs> fault, man. I'm sorry. I just, I got into a mode of laughing. I couldn't stop. <laughs> eventually yes. I lost. I couldn't make it. Ladies and gentlemen, we're doing all this with no alcohol. And uh, imagine, just imagine. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so that is Alumni Alley for UNC. It did not disappoint. I bet all of you were coming on here thinking we were going to be talking James Worthy. We're going to be talking Michael Jordan. We're going to be talking all these obvious people. Uh, Not so fast. Not so fast, my friends. Um, So Alumni Alley for your UNC, for your your hated UNC Tar Heels. I think we had some really – something really cool happen this week. Brian was mentioning earlier he's done the – looking back on this, I believe we had some legit winners – for our prediction uh, for the Kansas game. Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about last week's predictions? Well, we had two gentlemen predict Duke's score on the nose. So since we won, I'm going off of that. There were some other scores that were closer, but again, these guys both predicted that Duke would drop 52 points on Kansas. From Facebook, Zachary Adams, he predicted Duke would win 52 to 13. And on Twitter, Brian Aldridge, at Brian Aldridge, went Duke 52-14. to 14. So their scores are actually only one point off. But, guys, congratulations. You actually nailed Duke's score on the head. Yeah, it's super cool. And just as a reminder, each week on Thursdays, typically, um, we will put out a tweet and we'll put out a post on Facebook asking you to tell us who's going to win and what's the score uh, going to be. And then we will give you credit and give you props whoever gets the closest on next week's podcast. And so this week ought to be interesting. I'm sure we'll see some Duke homers come out of the woods a little bit. I'm sure we'll see some Duke pessimists. And by the way, uh, we try to be neither on this podcast, uh, neither homers nor pessimists, but man, some of y'all out there, man, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. But anyway, uh, moving on, we're going to talk about our prediction, what we're looking ahead uh, this Saturday to uh, the game against UNC, maybe a brief, uh, talk through uh, how we think things will go, and then we'll end each of our guys giving us uh, who's going to win and what is the score going to be. Well, one, one shout out to Josh, who's a favorite alumnus. Uh, the only reasons ever in my life I would ever pull for the Yankees or Carolina was because of him, because there's no way I'm pulling for either one of those two guys, no matter what happens. But uh, in, a, in a game like this, in a rivalry game, you know, there's been many great players and gr- many great moments. You know, Carolina had Charlie Choo Choo Justice, who was recruited by Duke, by the way, back in the day. Wes Chesson and the great shoestring play, trick play to win the game. Lawrence Taylor, Ben Bennett, Steve Spurrier posing in front of the scoreboard, 41-0 in Chapel Hill. Jamison Crowder with the catch to send Duke Bowling in 2012. Devon Edwards with the pick six to secure the ACC championship uh, opportunity in 2013. The two-handed set pass by the linebacker, I mean, quarterback Chaz Surratt to Byron Fields for this pick six, Brian Fields to secure the win. Larry Fedora on Thursday night in Durham 
running the cute play back and forth on the sideline where Duke ended up winning. And then finally, when the man was touched by the hand of Mr. Brian Kennedy, Daniel Jones securing his number six pick in the 2019 NFL draft at Wallace Wade in his senior day. Now, all that to be said, Carolina is an 18-point favorite. Over-under is 69.5. The ESPN has Carolina as an 83.1% winner. If you'd asked me last week, I would have told you 52-17. to 17. But you asked me this week, I'm going 52-38 Carolina because I do think we're going to score points, but I'm not 100% sure. And I, like I say, I'm not trying to be a homer, not trying to be a pessimist. I just don't know if we can stop them. After the bad week they had last week, I do think Carolina is going to score some points. I think they're going to play angry. It's over there. That place is going to be crazy. Going to play that. Look at all that stupid Argyle bull crap all afternoon. Just get tired of looking at that mess. It's like listening to Rocky Top for three hours. Just want to beat myself with an oar. But so I'm going to pick Duke to lose 52 to 38. And I hope in the Lord's name I am wrong and it's 52 38 the other way and we will all celebrate next Tuesday night on this podcast. Well, Josh is eating crow already with the Northwestern game, Scott, and I'll be right there with you. Uh, UNC is averaging 59 points at home so far this year. Now, it's only been two games, but still, one of those opponents was Virginia, right? Was it Virginia? Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't your atypical non-conference cupcake game. Duke is allowing 26 points per game defensively. And UNC is all four games combined, averaging 37 points per game. Duke is scoring, on average, 38 points per game. And UNC's defense is allowing almost 30 points a game. Scott, you said the over-under was 69 and a half. Okay. And that was the first I heard it because I made my I wrote down my prediction about, uh, about three, four hours ago. Just like with the basketball series, you can still throw records out when it comes to this game. There have been games that we should not have won that we won. There have been games where we thought we would roll over UNC and we got taken to the shit. This could be one of those games. We're still waiting for that complete game. And boy, what, what better game to have that first complete game of the season than against UNC. Sam Howell looked like a man amongst boys when he ran in on that touchdown against Georgia Tech, eluding five tacklers. He's also their second leading rusher on the team. Sam Howell's a, a mobile quarterback now, and that's what concerns me the most about this game, more than anything else. I truly believe it's going to be a close game, but in the end, I think the UNC team that the media and their fans thought would show up for this season will show up. I've got UNC winning by a touchdown, 38-31. to 31. I'm going to be very disappointed with the outcome if it is that but you know what if we can hang with a team that many people predicted to go to the final four at the end of the year hey I'll take that all day I guess a moral victory but still I'm with Scott I will be more than happy to come on next week eat some crow if we can get this win over UNC and move to four and one y'all I'm still trying to wrap my head around this whole two and two record I I mean, I thought they were supposed to be playing Alabama in the national championship game. That's not going to happen. I mean, I know the tendency is to 
look ahead when you have to play Duke the next week. I mean, Duke's a, you know, Duke's a football juggernaut. So they went down to Georgia Tech and they were looking ahead. They were looking to the battle of the victory bell. And they got smashed by Georgia Tech. I mean, yeah, it's just, Georgia Tech just took them to the woodshed. I mean, it was, you know, just terrible for Carolina. And I'm, it's kind of hard for me to hide this. I mean, obviously, I hate UNC. So let's, let's get that out of the way. Like, I don't like them. I don't like them. I don't like their football team. I don't like their basketball team. I don't like to go to Chapel Hill. Uh, it just, I don't like it. Uh, but they got to have a good team. In all seriousness, they have a good team. Sam Howell is going to be an NFL quarterback. He's a probably a top five draft pick. But this year, they've had a little trouble stopping the run. Uh, they gave up over 200 yards rushing to Georgia Tech just, just last weekend, and a lot of that was from the quarterback, Sims. Uh, but I think Gunner can do some of the same things that Sims can, and Gunner's actually more accurate of a passer as well. So, And, of course, there's Mateo. Uh, I think UNC is going to have a hard time stopping us. We're going to have a hard time stopping UNC as well. Uh, but if we can have some ball control offense – uh, kind of keep their offense over on the sideline. Let's think that we can maybe keep this thing close. And uh, who am I kidding? 45-38, Duke. Don't at me. Ooh, okay. Ooh, man. Wait, wait, wait. What was your season prediction again? I got to throw that in your face. Five and seven, is that what it was? Five and seven. I'm such uh -huh. a homer. Can't yeah. help it. <laughs> Yes. Hey, listen, you thought that we were going to all pick UNC to win, but not James Holt, not James K. Holt. Uh, <laughs> so here we go, guys. This Duke Carolina, what do I think is going to happen? Well, first of all, Sam Howell has thrown 11 touchdown passes so far this season. Five of them have been to Josh Downs, who looks like the fastest little thing um, in college football, little fella. Little fella just flying down the street, uh, flying down the field there. Um, if Josh Downs gets separation on our guys, it's going to be a long day. I'm going to tell you that right now. Um, Howell has also ran for another four touchdowns or three touchdowns. He is responsible, I believe, for 14 uh, touchdowns so far this season. Um, I'm not here to blow smoke up Sam Howell's skirt. All right, Sam Howell's good. Everybody's talking about how good he is. You know, it's funny because they the team has been underwhelming, but Sam Howell's stats are still good. Um, they are missing, and here's what it is. They are missing a man. When I say a man, I mean a man by the name of Javante Williams, and they're missing a man by the name of Michael Carter. Um, and at the end of the day, those two guys, Javante Williams in Denver, Michael Carter Jr., not to be, not to be um, confused with Michael Carter II, who was also on the Jets and starting and playing really well. Shout out Duke in the NFL. Um, but Michael Carter Jr. is also running the ball well with the Jets. Those guys are in the NFL. They're gone. And so at the end of the day, uh, Carolina's O-line and their running game uh, seems to be what is holding them up a little bit offensively. As you guys mentioned, they're uh, not stopping the run defensively um, as well. I do believe this is going to be a shootout. I, I really believe that. I believe – that we could possibly see some more Jordan Moore packages uh, this week because I really 
I really feel like we're going to we're going to run the ball quite a bit with the quarterback and listen Gunner took a beating last week. He really did take a beating um and I can just see us uh maybe running some more of those uh one or two series in this game with Jordan Moore. But I would say this, I mean it's not like the the coaching staff is listening, but man if we did run Jordan Moore it would be nice to run a complete package with him like not just the QB run like, it would be nice to see us open up, let him throw the ball some, run one of those misdirections where he gets, you know, he gets a little out route to the uh, tight end or to a wide receiver, a slot receiver coming across the field, something like that, and, and let's just open it up a little bit. But anyway, all that being said, uh, Mateo should have a good day. Jordan Waters uh, should have a good day as well. Um, by the way, he's had a great season so far. Um, but in the end, we are on the road. We're in Chapel Hill. I know it's. I know it's a – rivalry game it's also the first week of October which is weird but I know it's a rivalry game listen I know Keenan Stadium sucks I know you can't tailgate there you can't you can't even park you have to park at the mall it's ridiculous I understand that they're going to announce that they had full seating capacity at the game that they were a sellout and look when we when, when you look at the game 40 percent of the people aren't in the stands they're not there we hate Carolina. Mac Brown, he's like a car used car salesman. He had everybody hyped up on this team. And look at them. They suck. They're two and two. But they're going to come out this Saturday, and they're going to win the football game. And I hate to say that as much as it pains me. I hate to say that. So my prediction, high-scoring game. We can't stop them. They can't stop us. I'm going UNC, 41. I'm going Duke, 34. Close, but no cigar. But here's the deal. If that happens, I'll come on this podcast next week, and we'll talk about how we were pleased with that. If Duke keeps it within less than two scores, I don't believe any of us are going to come on here and just trash us, unless we absolutely wet the bed or something in the fourth quarter to give that game up. But other than that, I believe that we're logical enough to understand what we're facing. And I believe at the end of the day, I think it's going to be a one-score game. I think Carolina just wins it in the end. I got one more question for you guys, and this is something that's gained traction online. Y'all know I'm the Jersey czar, and I actually had Duke football equipment reach out and say that they still have all the decals for all the different logos, Hellraisers included. My question, I'm going to start doing this. What are your predictions for the Jersey combo for this weekend's game? I think I see whites. I almost think icy white helmet too with the Duke script. So, so the white out with the Duke script, Jamie. I don't know. I was gonna. I was. I, I want to go icy whites as well. I'm gonna go the Hellraiser helmet. Let's let's do that. That would be awesome. Okay, so you guys hit you hit the nail on the head, Jamie. That, that's what I want to see. I would love to see icy whites with the Hellraiser. The last time Brian would know this. Correct me if I'm wrong. The last time we wore the white helmets with the Hellraiser was the Daniel Jones game against UNC. The white helmet with the – I'm sorry, I've missed that. My bad. Uh, but he no. was wearing that helmet <laughs> in that game. I thought they were wearing the blue helmets with the white Hellraiser. Well, I could be wrong. I thought it was the white with the blue. <clears throat> yeah, the, 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 last, the last time they went white helmets with the blue Hellraiser logo was Keenan two years ago. Gotcha. So that leads me to – I'm going to start calling it that. I'm, as a pastor, I'm going to start calling them the Heck Razors. 
those those heck razor uh, helmets. But here's what I'm going to go. This is what I logically think they're going to do Saturday because Duke football equipment, they're trolling us, dude. They know we want to see sick uniforms, and they're just not doing it, man. They're going to go blue lids with the script, white shirts, and blue pants. That's what they're going to do. That's what they're going to do, and they're doing it. They're, when they do it, literally when they release the uh, the video for the uniforms, they're laughing, going, hey, whoever this at TB Kennedy 22 is, he is going to go off on us. I'm kind of in the same boat with you, Josh, but with one minor modification. I think I'm going to go with Scott's helmet, white with the blue script lettering, white top, blue pants. I could see UNC rocking the UNC blue helmet, blue top, white bottom. So I, th I think that's where we're going to go. And look, it's all in good, clean fun. We just like to see variations. We, you know, we have a lot of people want to see the gray heck razors, as Josh would say, that combo, the gray out. I, we just like to see variations. It's cool. Heck, as we're recording, I'm wearing a Hellraiser sweatshirt, right, that I got vintagebrand.com, for those of you wondering. Um, but it's just all in good fun. You know, we, we, we like to look good and, you know, I, I think a lot of people like the Hellraiser logo. So who knows? Maybe we'll make an appearance this year. But I think this is a good good place to stop, guys. This is obviously the, the biggest game of the year for us as Duke fans with the prestige, the history, the victory bell that's at stake. And, again, I, I think all four of us would love to come on here next week, except for Jamie because he predicted Duke win, to say that we were wrong. But we'll happily take the bell back and go four and one heading into Georgia Tech. But you know what? We're going to close up shop. Yep, hey, Josh. Before we close, can I yeah. ask us ask you guys to do something? If you're listening to this podcast, wherever you are listening to this podcast, it would be best if it's on Apple and or Spotify. Would you give us a five star rating? Uh, that would be really really cool. If you would be willing to give us a five star rating, maybe even leave us a review. It just helps the podcast get some more steam. And man, we're seeing more and more people listen every week. So if you could do that for us, we would greatly appreciate it. This, this advertisement brought to you by Josh Cox. <laughs> but, but again, it, it's been a great episode. And, you know, Rivalry Week is one of the best weeks. Again, to Josh's point, why it's in October and not November, that's between the ACC and the schools. But it's been a great episode. And be sure to join us next week as we look forward to Duke's next opponent, the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. They will be coming into Wallace Wade Stadium for a 1230 kickoff, I believe on the Fox Sports Network. But as always, be sure to follow us on Facebook by searching Duke Football Talk and on Twitter by searching at Duke FB Talk. For Josh Cox, Jamie Holt, Scott Medlin, and producer Justin Sykes, I'm Brian Kennedy, and this has been the Duke Football Talk Section 17 podcast. Go to hell, Carolina. Go to hell. <laughs>